The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, verses 1 through 11. If you're following along in our Pewback Bible, we're on page 518. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we encourage you to take one home, um, one of the books in the Pewback's home with you. Again, we're Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but, to the, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will, be, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things to, yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. I want to say welcome to all of you. Uh, If you're new to Park, uh, especially uh, welcome to you. We know it's a vulnerable thing to come into a new community uh, where you might not know people. And so we're so glad that you'd come. Uh, We worship Jesus every Sunday uh, like this. We sing songs to celebrate who he is and what he's done. We learn from his word, what it means to follow him, what it means to learn more about what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And uh, and so we unpack that on Sundays, we celebrate that on Sundays, but we also work it out in our lives and communities uh, all around the city throughout the week in a number of different ways. And so if you're looking for more ways to get involved, a couple things just to note. One, right after the service, every service we have, we have a short meeting that's designed for folks that are newer to our community. So in the back corner of the gallery, there's a sign that says new here. We take about 10 minutes to get to know you a little bit, answer questions you might have and help you get plugged in uh, in any way that we can uh, to our community. Uh, Also, on on the way in, you should have got a bulletin. On that bulletin, there's um, a newcomer's breakfast uh, that has, uh, there's some information there about details, just designed for people that are newer to get a little more time to hear from some of our leaders, meet some other people, and again, find out a little bit more about how to get involved in our community. So that's available for you. But again, I want to say welcome. Uh, We are beginning right now a 12-week series through the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been anticipating this for well over a year. Ecclesiastes has been kind of like echoing in my soul for the past few years, and we just had to finish Matthew uh, before I could like finally uh, get, get to this moment. And so we're here um, that I'm excited about that, and uh, I'm excited to get into this, this series with you all. This is an incredible book of the Bible that has remarkable and really potent and incisive wisdom for our life as we navigate through the complexities Uh, that we face in this world. And before we do, uh, I actually want to just invite us to pray for a member of our church family this morning. Um, Some of you would have seen, if you're on our prayer channel on CCB, that um, Art Spano, who's a beloved member of our church family, uh, is in the hospital right now. And last night was intubated. He's in the ICU right now. He um, was here last Sunday, might have even maybe read scripture at the 9 a.m. service um, later in the week. Uh, had a fever that wouldn't subside, a really high fever. He was admitted to the hospital on Tuesday. And um, on Wednesday, things got a little bit harder. He started losing some ability to kind of think clearly and communicate clearly. And it kept progressing uh, throughout the week and to the point where he was 
uh, unable to respond and unable to continue breathing on his own. And so uh, he was intubated last night uh, or yesterday afternoon. Art's wife, Margie, uh, and Art have been here for over 14 years. They were here when there's 30 people at Park Church in the Lutheran building right up the street. Have been incredible family, just, just pillars of faith in our community. Art's daughter, Shauna, and her husband, James, go here with their kids, uh, are here. And then they have another son named Chris and his wife, Lauren. Chris is a pastor in the Northeast. Um, Chris flew in last night. And it's not a good situation. Um, they found out today results from a spinal tap that they took yesterday that he has encephalitis. Um, many of you know we were praying for Art. Uh, he needed a kidney transplant a few years back and got, got a kidney transplant from somebody in our community, which was a remarkable thing. But because of that transplant, he just doesn't have the strength in the immune system uh, to fight. And so we're fighting through prayer and praying for healing and restoration of his health. Uh, he's, in a, he's in a difficult, difficult spot right now. And so we need God to do miracles to restore uh, brain functioning to allow the swelling in his brain to go down and this uh, infection to subside. The doctors don't know yet what caused that infection, and so they're having a difficult time knowing how to treat it other than just kind of generic antibiotics um, that they're pumping into a system right now. And so, uh, you know, we want to be praying for healing for arts and with whatever degree of awareness he has right now for peace for him, uh, peace in his inner being. He navigates through things. Uh, we got to spend time with him on, on Wednesday or on um, Friday and on Saturday. And on Friday, there was more kind of consciousness. You could tell he could hear things. And it's just a hard, hard situation. So I want to pray for peace, that God would wash him with peace that passes understanding. But also for Margie and for Shauna and for Chris and for James and for Lauren and for the grandkids that they have, that God would meet them with peace. And so as part of our family, love this family. This family has loved and served this church in so many beautiful ways. Just want to enter in and pray for them uh, right now in this really, really hard moment in their story. So what I want to do here in a moment is pray for the Spanos, pray for Art, and uh, and then I'll also pray for our series through Ecclesiastes. Uh, the things we'll, we'll talk about today, which you can kind of talk about at, at a philosophical level or a the- theoretical level, really hit hit home when you're walking through real pain in your own life. And many of you walk through your own pain. You come into this room with your own story, your own pain that you navigate and feel. And so I want to walk through these things and pray that God would take the truths of Ecclesiastes and bring them to bear in our lives as we navigate through the real stuff of life. We don't want to analyze it like kind of ancient historians that are studying an old document. Our prayer is that God would meet us in these realities, in the realities of the pain and perplexities of life, and, and bring us to a deeper hope in Jesus, in his love, his presence, and the resurrection life that he offers. And so let's pray uh, together. And Jesus, even right now, would you pour out your spirit on art? And we pray for healing in his body, that the swelling in his brain would subside. Even now, in Christ's name, we pray that the healing would go down. Even now, we pray that the infection would subside and that his body would be restored and that he would become more responsive and that his strength would return. We pray that right now. We pray that it would be something that would even shock the doctors, just say, what, what is happening right now? God, that you'd move to show your redeeming resurrection power through a story of healing. We're asking for it. We're learning to ask and to knock and to seek. We're praying that you would do that, Jesus, in powerful ways. Would you give these incredible doctors, this medical team, wisdom and clarity and skill and ideas and thoughtfulness and just um, awareness, not, not just using their strength, but give them supernatural wisdom to see things and understand things that, and try things that, that they haven't yet anticipated. So we're praying, God, for power, whether it's supernatural outside of these doctors or through these doctors. We just, we want to see art healed. And so we're praying, we're knocking. Would you pour out peace in his life? Would you give his heart and his soul peace? Would you bring peace to Margie and to Shauna and to James and their kids and to Chris and to Lauren and their kids and to all the people in our own community and the friends and family Throughout Denver, that art has just been a, a friend and a rock to you. Would you pour out your spirit and bring comfort to our community and to the family and bring peace that passes understanding? God, we need you here. I want to ask for you to work in powerful ways. So pour out your grace on them. Root them, anchor them in your love, their family in your love. And we pray that you would restore and glorify yourself and bring restoration in beautiful ways to this family. And as our church family steps into a book of the Bible where you've called us to face these kinds of things with honesty, 
Would you help us not fall into despair or hopelessness, but rather that our hope would be founded on a more sure foundation? That we'd build our life on your redeeming love and on your resurrection power. That we learn to trust in and live for the unshakable things when the world around us is shaking, when our own lives are shaking, that you'd situate us on that which is unshakable, on Christ and his kingdom. And so would you free us this morning from the lies that continue to call us to give our life and chase after the transient, the temporal, the fleeting, and to find real, deep, mature, stable, unshakable joy and life in Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. I had prepared an intro for this series and just all week, it was just uh, it was an interesting week to feel incredible grief in a number of different pockets of life and then also some incredible joys in a number of different pockets of life and just kept thinking about Ecclesiastes as I was facing just different things in the day-to-day life. On Monday, it was Labor Day, beautiful day. My wife's in-laws were here. We went up to, uh, to Golden, just walking along the river. We have my wife's parents and my wife and I and our four kids just strolling along the river. It was a really beautiful, beautiful day. And on the same day, just a chance to sit down with a, a family in our, in our church who's walking through real uncertainties with pregnancy and seeking God in the midst of a lot of uncertainty, trying to trust in him and follow him and hold fast to him. You feel this tension. Throughout the week, just a lot of beautiful things. Heard some stories of God doing incredible things and some people in our own community, just transformation in life. And at the same time, hear the news about Art going to the hospital on Tuesday night. And a lot of you got the email. Melanie got married. Melanie Fenwick, Miss Melanie, who's our director of Park Kids, got married on Tuesday, which is incredible. So we celebrated that. And while at the wedding, we get an email or a text that says Art's gone to the hospital. And just feeling this, this tension. On, on Friday morning, I was hanging out with some people and talking about a friend in our church family who has a new baby and just talking about the joy of having this new baby. And then later on Friday, sitting in the hospital with Art and the family, the Spanos, and just seeing a man wrestling and fighting life-threatening illness. And you just feel this tension. Yesterday was our Sabbath day. Uh, my daughter, who's two, uh, woke up earlier than she should have from a nap. And so it was just a slow Saturday. So I just kind of bundled her up in my arms and laid on her bed. And she slept like that for an hour, just like in my arms. And if you've ever done that, it's the greatest feeling on the planet, on the planet. And it's, it's, we're going to talk about this. It's an under the sun experience. It is fleeting because my 13 year old would never do this. And, uh, and so it's just like, it would be, it would be weird for him and it'd be weird for me. And, um, but the two-year-old nestled in, fits exactly right under the arm. And while I'm doing that, I, I get a text that Art's going to need to go to the ICU and be intubated. And so to sit with their family last night, and you just feel these things. And in your own life, you could name these things. You could talk about the beauty, the, the goodness, the, the tastes of abundance and life and joy. You can talk about the pains you've faced and, and the difficulties you've navigated, the things that are perplexing and confusing, disorienting and grievous. We, we, can, we, can, we can feel these things. And every human being is trying to make sense of it. We are, we are creatures who try to make sense of things. We all are. We're trying to make sense. And so you have philosophies of this world and religions that are trying to kind of sort through and make sense of how do we navigate through the kind of beautiful things we experience and the broken things we experience, the delights and the joys and the pleasures and the grief and the loss and the pain. The things that make sense and make us feel like this is life and the things that make no sense and we say, what is life? You know, like it's both. We feel both of these things and people are trying to navigate it. It's it's hard stuff to think about. In fact, uh, in the kind of opening kind of parable from the late David Foster Wallace's kind of famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, um, he, he begins with this fish story and here's what he says. He says, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the, and the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? And what David Foster Wallace says, the point of the story, after he kind of makes fun of, you know, opening story says this, the point of the fish story, he says, is merely that the most obvious, listen to this, the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and to talk about. 
that the obvious and most important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and to talk about. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is going to confront us with, with things that are not crazy. They're, they're very obvious. They're very obvious. Like it's all around you. Things like your inability to control your life or the outcomes of your life. Things like your mortality and the fleeting nature of life. Reality is like the reality that this whole generation will come and this generation will go and another generation will come off the scene and on the scene and within a hundred years, none of us will be remembered. That's obvious. Like just pay attention, it's obvious, but it's difficult to see in the midst of the day-to-day life and it's really hard for us to talk about. We try really hard not to. In fact, culturally, we work really hard to take stories and people and things that would remind us of those uncomfortable realities and push them to the margins and the edges of our society and our consciousness. Like very few people do your kind of like social media algorithms. Are they presenting things about your mortality? Your social media algorithms are telling you about the life you're chasing that you feel like is accessible and right there for you. And, and very few of us are spending our time saying, I'd like to slow down and think about the fact that I really don't have control, that I'm really not that important, that I'm going to die and be forgotten. The author of Ecclesiastes is going to take those things and not just kind of like mention them, It's going to be 12 chapters, and we're going to spend 12 weeks just putting our face in it. He's going to rub your nose in it a little bit because he actually thinks it's helpful. It's not to kind of lead you to this like nihilistic hopelessness. It's actually to break down the sort of faulty foundations that we build our life on so that you can actually lay your life on a better, healthier foundation, a more foundation, a more mature foundation that can lead to actually lasting joy and a real sense of meaning and purpose. That's where it's going to lead us. But he takes time to really linger and to kind of work out the different things we tend to build our life on and to explore them with a kind of relentlessness that's going to be disorienting. Now, a lot of people, a lot of us will feel disoriented and uncomfortable. But my sense is from our congregation that a number of you like the book of Ecclesiastes. Who who says you know this and you already like this book? You like, okay. It's good. I feel like a third of the 9 a.m. So if you want to hang out with more people like you, you know, the 9 a.m. is like more like uh, disillusioned people that find joy in Ecclesiastes. The 9 a.m. is older, a little bit older than this. Kind of, uh, Dwight, I see you out here. Dwight Dwight turns 95 soon, so not older than Dwight. Um, But that that 9 a.m., if you want to hang out with people that are a little further down the line, that are like, Ecclesiastes is my jam. Uh, That's at the 9 a.m. But I think this is going to be meaningful for us. We have, we have kind of, at an average, uh, we have a younger congregation with a lot of people that are just out of the gates building your life. And Ecclesiastes is going to poke at you a little bit. It's going to poke at you a little bit. But it's to help you. At the end of Ecclesiastes, it talks about these. This is like a goad, like a, like a stick with spikes on it in the hands of a good shepherd that's going to kind of like poke you towards a healthier way of living. But it's a little prickly. And I love that stuff. So 12 weeks is what we're going to spend in it. It's going to be a lot of fun, um, disorienting, but ultimately helpful. And so what we need to do today is simply to lay a foundation uh, for what's going on in this book to help you understand where it kind of like situates in the history of redemption. Because if you don't know where it situates in that story, parts of it will be uh, unnecessarily confusing. But if we can situate it, I think it'll bring some clarity uh, to the different things that the, that the preacher or the teacher is exploring. So we'll kind of situate it there and talk about who's giving this message and, and where it all leads us. We'll begin to kind of wade into the basic theme of Ecclesiastes, which the first 11 verses is going to unpack in a really beautiful poetic fashion. And then we'll spend the next 12 weeks working it out together. So that's where we're going. going to kind of begin uh, with Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1. Verse 1, we'll take some time to unpack the background, and then we'll jump into the poem uh, together. And so Ecclesiastes 1, 1, if you don't have a Bible, um, again, grab the one in front of you. encourage you to keep it open as we make our way through this book. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So who wrote Ecclesiastes? Well, it's not as straightforward a question as it might seem. Uh, Some of your translations here are going to say the preacher. Some are going to say the teacher. We'll talk about that. But what's important to know, and almost all commentators these days would kind of affirm this reality, that there are two primary voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. One voice we'll call the author or the frame narrator, okay? And the author or the frame narrator in chapter 1, verse 1, is going to tee up 
this preacher or this teacher. In the rest of the book, from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 12, verse 8, is going to be unpacking the words of the teacher or the preacher. We'll talk about who that is. Then that author is going to circle back in chapter 12, verse 9, through chapter 12, verse 14, just a handful of verses, to give some sort of grounding thoughts as you contemplate the disorienting ideas that the preacher and the teacher has offered to us. And so imagine it like this. Imagine a friend, uh, like maybe a faithful Christian friend that's like, you know, learning and growing and and they love Jesus and love his word and and they've come across a sermon and they're like, I think you should listen to this sermon. It's a little bit out there. I think it's faithful. It's good, but it's disorienting. Uh, It's a little bit kind of like uh, different than most of the other things you've probably heard. It might be uncomfortable for you, but I think it'll be helpful. And so you, they give you the podcast, they text it to you or whatever, and then, and then they circle back after you're done and say, okay, that was kind of crazy, I know, but like, what do we do at the end of this? And they'll give some grounding, centering thoughts, fear God, keep his commandments, this is what life is about, God's going to bring every thought into judgment, whether for good or for evil, and just give some grounding thoughts. That's the framework. So there's the frame narrator, the author, chapter 1, verse 1 to then at the end, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. The bulk of Ecclesiastes is from the voice of the preacher. Some of your translations don't say the preacher. What do some of your translations say? The teacher. All right, the, the preacher or the teacher. What, what's going on? Um, underneath this, so the preacher has it in the ESV, King James, the New American Standard. The teacher is in the NIV or the NLT. Underneath those English translations is this Hebrew word, kohelet, put that on the screen here for Kohelet. Can we say that together? Kohelet? Kohelet. All right. Kohelet uh, is a leader of an assembly or a congregation. So there's a Hebrew word, kahal. You don't need to know that, but it'll make sense in a second while I'm saying it. To kahal is to assemble. Okay. So to 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 kahal something is to assemble. A Kohelet is the assembler, the one who's assembled people. And so are they assembling to teach? Are they assembling to preach? Are they assembling to lead? I don't know. They're the assembler. They've called the meeting, but they're the leader of the assembly, right? The the Greek word for an assembly is is the word for church, which is ekklesia. Many of you have heard that word before, ekklesia, the church, an assembly. And so the Greek word for the assembler of the ekklesia is ecclesiastes, ecclesiastes the one who's called the assembly, the leader of the assembly. So when you hear about the word Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is just a Greek translation of this word right here, this word Kohelet, and it's the teacher. The Hebrew title for this book of the Bible is Kohelet. So we might refer to him sometimes as the teacher or the preacher or the assembler or just Kohelet. Uh, Who is this Kohelet? Who is the assembler? Uh, Traditionally, a lot of people have assumed that Kohelet is Solomon. Um, Solomon, the son of David, the biological son of David who ascended to the throne after David's death. Um, Most modern, even evangelical, faithful people that love and believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture would agree that the message of Ecclesiastes and the themes of Ecclesiastes and some of the things talked about in Ecclesiastes indicate that this book was written much later in Israel's history than Solomon's life. And so although it has a Solomon-like kind of feel to it, and it's entering into the wisdom tradition of Solomon, you're like, some of you are like, this is way above, and I don't care, get past it. I'm just trying to lay a foundation. A handful of you are interested, and then we're going to move on. Um, and so this, this Kohelet seems to be a royal figure, an offspring of David. Son of David doesn't mean biological son. It means somebody in the Davidic line. An offspring of David, who's a ruler in Jerusalem some years after the exile and the return from exile in Babylon. So what, what I want to do is kind of give you a framework for, for how this works out in, um, in Ecclesiastes. And it might feel a little confusing, but I'm going to give you a chart that is going to totally clarify everything for you. So here's the chart. Um, <laughs> do you get it? Doesn't that make sense? All right, that's, not, that's an end times chart, which I just think is funny. Um, I like, oh, that's just funny to me. Uh, we showed that one in, uh, in Matthew 25, just because it's funny. Uh, I want to show you a chart that I made that's a little more helpful, hopefully a little more simple, and that chart is this. That's my chart. That's way, way more simple. Um, and so to navigate this, what, what I want to do is just give you a st- the story as quickly as we can to situate this book and to help you understand what, what, what's the author exploring 
when he's exploring this life under the sun. And so uh, we as a church family love to make sense of life in the broader kind of narrative of what God's doing throughout human history. And so we often start at the beginning and remind ourselves that God created the heavens and the earth. And they are created to be together, the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of humanity as one. God with us, us with him. He is our God. We are his people walking with him. And so when he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and he populated the heavens and the earth with all these beings and luminaries, and he planted humanity in the garden where we got to experience his nearness and his love, and Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the day in conversation with their creator. Beautiful moments. And it's really, really good. But this the serpent comes in, this spiritual enemy, this antagonist in the story and deceives humanity. Humanity buys into the law, into the lie to that the true path to joy in life is to reject the reign of God, to reject his authority over us, and to try to take the things of creation, the goodness and the love and the joy and the pleasures and the comforts, and to kind of suck them out for ourselves without regard to the creator without honoring him and trusting in him, without trusting in his love and his life and his authority over us. And so that we call the fall. And so we have on this, the chart's going to get a little more complicated, admittedly. Uh, So we have the fall. And in the fall, in Genesis 3, it talks about it. And there's a few words in Genesis 3 that are important. The fall comes because humanity rebels against the king. The Bible calls this sin. We sin against him and we're exiled from the garden. In the heavenly realm of God, In the earthly experience of life, there's a separation. There's a separation. And so we're living life separated from the heavenly realm. And in that life, we're now trying to kind of make sense of life in this world. And what Genesis 3 says is because of human sin, this experience is full of thorns and thistles and death. There is still goodness and there is still beauty because God made the world. And everything in it. And so there are tastes of goodness and beauty for all humanity, not just Christians or people that honor God. Humans get to taste beauty and goodness because they live in a world that God made. But we all taste also thorns and thistles and death. In other words, life is frustrating, feels at times futile, feels overwhelming. There's suffering, there's pain, there's loss, there's disorientation. Things don't always go well. In fact, they always tend to go wrong. This sort of like Murphy's Law, that as soon as you start building something up, it starts breaking back down, and there's difficulty, and then you die. And that's life here in this world. And God, rather than kicking us to the curb and saying, we're done with you, immediately in Genesis 3, he makes a promise that a day is coming when an offspring of the woman will defeat this spiritual enemy, this, this power of darkness, and will restore humanity. And we will once again be with God, and God with us. New heavens and new earth, all things restored. And that promise is stated to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It's reiterated again to Noah after the flood. And then it's stated with more development to Abraham. Abraham who's called to be this father of many nations. That through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That the blessing of God, that the restorative presence of God, the life-giving presence of God would, would come to all humanity through Abraham's offspring. And that's this promise. And then Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 kids, 12 tribes. They, through a series of wild events, find themselves in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years through Moses and this redeeming love of God through the 10 plagues and the blood of a sacrificial lamb and finding life in God as they cross through the sea, that that the people of Israel are brought out into the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, through Joshua and many others, they begin establishing their own presence. They're looking for a king. They don't have a king. We want a king. Who's going to be our king? Is it Saul? Turns out, no, it's not Saul. It's going to be David. David's going to be the king. And so we get to this next point in the story where David just starts rolling and succeeding up and to the right. Things are moving and grooving. He's got moral issues, character issues, family issues. He's a mess like all humans throughout all history, including us, right? He's a mess. We're a mess. We need God to fix the mess. Like that's the fundamental baseline of Christianity. He's a mess. We're a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. We need Jesus to fix the mess. So, so David's cruising and things are going well-ish, you know, and he has his moral failures, but he keeps turning back to God, and then he passes the kingdom off to his son Solomon. David makes the, the capital city of the people of Israel in Jerusalem. Solomon builds a temple, and things are, like, looking great for Solomon. Solomon's got this wisdom, and there's, there's like, 
thoughtfulness and they're worshiping God and the temple's there. And then in Solomon's life, he, he turns away from that wisdom and he takes a turn, which brings us to this. Solomon goes downhill. Uh, he's just going to get that quick, quick turn there. Uh, Solomon's life tanks in the second half of his life. You can read about this in the Chronicles and the King's story. Just kind of walks through the story of Israel and Solomon's own failure. Uh, he, he fails morally. He fails as a leader. He passes the kingdom off to his kids. His kids divide the kingdom. And then it's just trouble and pain from then on out. Ups and downs, mostly down, to the point of exile. They're exiled 586 BC. They're exiled to Babylon. They're in Babylon for 70 years. You're like, I thought you said this was going to be a short lesson. I'm like, we're, we're, going, we're, we're going for it. We're laying a foundation. We're laying a foundation. 70 years in Babylon, and they're waiting and longing for a new Exodus, a new David, a new Moses, a new covenant, a new thing. And all of a sudden, they're, they're set free from exile through this decree from Cyrus, and they begin this return, this return from exile. They go back into the land. Nehemiah commissions the building of the walls. Ezra kind of starts rebuilding the temple. But immediately, there's this sense like, this isn't even as good as it used to be. Like, this is worse than Solomon's temple. And you start feeling the disillusionment of the people of God. And they start anticipating something's got to change. And then after that, it's up and down, up and down. And this is where Kohelet is sitting, reflecting on the history of Israel in his own life. He's reflecting on 500 years of kind of like since David. He's reflecting on the past 1,500 years since Moses or the past 1,000 years since Moses, maybe about 1,500 years since Abraham. And he's beginning to think, like, what's the, what's the point? Even if we do a good job, our sons screw it up. Even the kings we've had that like killed it, Still, Assyria was dominating, or still, Greek was dominating. E even if we kind of like feel that and start just trying, well, maybe I'll just live my life for myself, and I'll chase out, and I'll chase after sex, and I'll chase after relationships, or if I just get wealth and possessions, and I try to accumulate those things, then it'll be enough. And then you just die, and you leave it all to your son, who just takes advantage of all of it. And then, and then you live your life, and you say, well, I'm going to pursue wisdom. And you live, and you have wisdom, but then you also die. And then you look at the life of like that wicked guy that didn't care about anything and it seems to go well and that really righteous person seems to suffer. And then you're thinking about the promise. It's like, what are we doing? And this is life under the sun. This is what we're talking about when Kohelet is reflecting on life under the sun. East of Eden in a world that's full of thorns and thistles and death. And he's reflecting on this reality. He's reflecting on a, on a national level in the history of Israel, thinking like, we need something this pattern has been going on for long enough that just to presume it's going to magically change without some severe intervention feels kind of foolish. Because we've, we've had our ups. We've had ups for like 20, 30 years and then downs again and ups and downs. And so what, what reason is there to believe that something's going to change unless God does something radically different? Radically different. So he's reflecting on that and he's reflecting on his own life. And the reason why this is immediately relevant is this is what we're all doing. We're all trying to live in our life and trying to build a sense of meaning. We're trying to essentially get back to the, the garden without God and we're trying or we're even trying to like use God if I have like relationships and religion and life, then I should be able to like have a life that's like up and to the right, all the way up there and things should get better and better and better and then you live life and it just doesn't. There's hardship, there's loss, there's pain, there's grief, there's difficulty. And Kohelet, the assembler, has gathered the people and gives this message. And this author, this frame narrator says, this, you guys need to hear this. You need this. It's important. And I think it's really important. So what is Kohelet saying? Here's the theme message of Kohelet. That life under the sun is a vapor. It's a vapor. And he says it right away at the beginning of this passage, chapter 1, verse 2, the beginning of his kind of sermon. It's the last phrase of his sermon. And this phrase of vapor shows up 37 times throughout his sermon. This is it. Listen to chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that is the message of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to spend 12 weeks on that. 12 weeks on that business, on life being vanity. So we should probably figure out what vanity is, right? What is what is vanity? Well, we, number one, I don't know why the ESV chose that word because it's just a word nobody uses anymore, right? Uh, maybe it's like a thing you sit in front of to like, you know, put your makeup on. Or I think of like, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, don't you? You know, like, or Vanity Fair or something, right? Like, when do we use vanity? Like, oh, this is vanity, you know? Um, 
Uh, it, it, what does that mean? So some of you have a different translation. What do some of you have? Meaningless. Okay, meaningless. Uh, meaningless is an interesting translation choice because it's getting at the significance of a word, but not the kind of like reality of the word. So underneath this idea of meaningless, so vanity is in the ESV, King James, meaningless is in the NIV, New International Version, NLT, futility is in the New American Standard. All of these words are getting at this, I- this idea, but none of them are actually speaking to the reality of, of the word. They're trying to kind of interpret the word and its significance. The word itself is a Hebrew word, hevel. Can we say that one together? Hevel. All right, you're going to see it has a B up there. That's a soft B in Hebrew. That's pronounced like a V, hevel, okay? So hevel, what is hevel? Hevel is a vapor or a mist or a breath of wind or a puff of air or smoke. It's anything that connotates this vaporish experience. And so if you saw the fog over Denver this morning, this is Hevel. When you blow a candle and you see the smoke rise up, this is Hevel. When you are on a cold day and you blow out and your warm air hits the cold air, you're seeing the condensation of those molecules. This is, this is Hevel. This is Hevel, right? And so Hevel is this idea of vapor. It's like the author of Ecclesiastes, at some point in his life, this Kohelet, this teacher, was living life And at some point, the idea that life is like a vapor came into his mind. Maybe it was around this idea of fleeting. It's like life is fleeting. It's here and then it's gone. And it's like a vapor. And it's like that was in his mind. And then as he kept living, he thought about some other areas and ways in which life is like a vapor. Like life is elusive. It's like you try to grab something and it just like slips through your fingers. This is heaven. It's like a vapor. Or this idea of like, man, you you want to build your life on something that's stable? But we were building our life on stuff that like, feels really unsubstantial. Uh, life is hevel. And so the author is going to brilliantly explore this word picture in all these different ways. He's going to talk about different aspects of life, not always meaningless or futility or not always temporary or fleeting, not always elusive or enigmatic or paradoxical. All those are there because it's hevel. And hevel, he can kind of explore this metaphor, and he's found it as a helpful way to describe the realities of life or the nature of life under the sun. And so with this idea, essentially this idea of vapor is going to get at a few things throughout the book. One is the fleeting nature of life, that it's temporary, it's momentary. One again is that it's elusive, difficult to grasp, like smoke is difficult to grasp. One is that it's cyclical, these kind of ups and downs. We were talking about Ecclesiastes in a meeting a few months ago, and Danny Fuhrer, who's a Park Church uh, Park Students resident uh, who graduated from School of Mines with a degree in chemical engineering. He's like, hey, can I talk to you a little bit from a chemical engineering perspective? I'm like, please. Uh, I, I love this stuff. And so he explained to me natural convection currents. I think I said that right. I'm just repeating things um, probably not accurately. So if you're a mines student or an engineer or a chemical engineer, please disregard and give me grace. But what he shared about the nature of these things, and it's relevant for this passage, is that vapor... Uh, has this kind of like natural movement in these cycles. Because of heat, it rises. And then as it rises, it condenses and it falls and it rises and it falls. And so you can think about this with just precipitation patterns, the rising and falling of precipitation. You can think about it with the hot air in your house rising, right? And it needs to be kind of circulated because that hot air is going to rise, but then those molecules fall. There's a movement. You can think about it when you're boiling like your noodles for dinner, right, in your pan, like things are going up to the top and then condensing at the top of your lid and then drop back down. If you take that lid off, you're going to see it go and vanish. And so it's fleeting it's unsubstantial, it's cyclical, it's all these things. And the author of, Hebrew, uh, of Ecclesiastes is like, this is a perfect way to describe life. Because life is all these things. All these things. And the first thing he's going to tap into is the realities of it being fleeting and cyclical. Look with me at verse 3. He says this, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's saying you're living your life under the sun. You're living your life east of Eden in a world that's full of futility and difficulty, and hardship, and, and God is there. He, he's not like not believing in God. He's just like, I don't see him. He's invisible. And so I'm just trying to make sense of life from this sort of like observational, existential perspective. And so he's working it out, and he's saying, as we toil and strive and do with the things we do, what do we gain? Like what, and the idea of gain is like, what do we leave behind? Like what does it profit, but what does it yield that actually like after we're off the scene has any real significance? What do we gain? And the next, the rest of this poem is him processing an answer, not giving a straightforward answer. He will rarely give a straightforward answer. 
uh, which is, you know, super frustrating. Um, but he's going to explore it with this, with this beautiful and imageful poem. He says this. He says, A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's a, it's a profound thing. Everybody in this room, within a couple hundred years, will be forgotten. Not just like dead, but forgotten. With rare, rare exceptions. Forgotten. The amount of us that would know your great-great-grandparents' name is very small. By the time you get to great-great-great-grandparents' name, I can't imagine many people knowing it unless you're like, a, you know, all about that stuff, you know. Um, you're going to be forgotten. And that's a humbling thing. And he says, this is, this is part of the world we live in. Generation comes, the generation goes. The earth remains. The earth's still here. It's not minding. We're just kind of like cycling through generations. They've come on the scene, come off the scene, and the earth continues. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. You're like, well, we had the Copernican Revolution. We understand that. Oh, we get it. It's phenomenological language. It's just saying, from our perspective, that earth, that sun comes up over there it makes its way across, and then it goes down over there. In ancient Hebrew cosmology, they had the sense that the sun's actually rising and going over and then going underneath and getting back ready to pop up the next day, and it's going to just do this. And that's what the sun does, and it's just always doing it. It's doing its thing, and it's been doing its thing for all of human history. The sun's doing its thing with no mind for our existence on this earth or on this planet even. It says the wind blows to the south, and it goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. And so we have that wind. The winds blow over the mountains. They come to Denver and they blow through a quick afternoon snow or rain or whatever it might be. And it blows on its way to Kansas. I grew up in Kansas and you can see storms coming from like three days away. You're like, looks like there's storms in Colorado. And you just like prepare. Those tornadoes that come from the Northeast will catch you by surprise. But, but the Denver storms that make their way across Kansas slowly, it's like, yeah. And then it makes its way and it just does it again. Just cycles, these currents of wind movements, right? All the streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. It's like the streams come from the mountains, they make their way down, they dump into the Platte or the Colorado or whatever, and they make their way to the sea. But the sea doesn't fill up. All that water's dumping in there. It just makes its way back and just does it again. Like, this is just happening. The world's like doing its thing, and here we are on it trying to make sense. And he says this in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man can't utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Like, we, we long for, we see things, and we, like, want more and more and more. And he'll explore that in the rest of this chapter. We'll talk about that next week and in chapter 2. Like, just always wanting more, and we never feel full. Like, I've seen enough, and I've experienced enough, and I've tasted enough. And we learn and learn and learn, and we ever, never feel as humans. Like, we've learned enough. We, 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 we don't get full. We just keep, we keep living he says, what has been, this is a powerful verse, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after He's saying, we live our life and we like are like chasing things and pursuing things and building things and it's, we're just like repeating the cycle. So here's the image, right? Here's the image that I have in my mind as I read through this. It, it, and I thought about this, like that famous kind of Shakespeare quote um, where he says, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely it's players and each having their entrances and their exits. And I think about, all right, so imagine life's playing out on this stage Right, and you've got the sun is going to rise over there, and we've got prop people like lift up the sun, and they're going to like take it over, you know, and then take it off the thing, and they're just going to keep doing that. The prop people are going to keep moving the sun, and we've got kind of a, a river that flows down. It's going to make its way down the aisle, and we've got a pump back there just to pump it back up, and we're going to keep that happening, right? And then we've got like the fan in the back, and we're blowing the fan, and the air is just circulating. It's sucking that air, and it's blowing, and here we are as humanity, generation after generation, you know, coming from stage right. And we're like born, and we're like, oh my gosh, there's a world, you know, like, it's incredible, and we're little kids, and we're babies, and then we're kids, and we're playing, and having fun, and enjoying life like kids do, and then we get into teenage years, and we're like, what's up, you know, we're like, what's up, you know, like, starting to kind of like, 
you know, get some attention from some people and be cool and kind of figure out who we are and, you know, work out all our insecurities. And then, and then you like get into college and you're like, I'm like asking the hard questions and I'm learning and I'm building and, you know, I'm taking life, you know, and you're like, maybe you're chasing life, still the pleasure stuff, but maybe you're starting to like anticipate as you get to that senior year, like, what am I going to do with my life? And then you're like, start building your life. And as you're building your life, you see other people building their life. You're like, I want that. I want that. And I want to build better than that. And who do I need to, like, what will make me feel valuable? Can I build better than this person or that person? So we start kind of like striving and comparing and, and building and you, you build a career or you build a family or what it, whatever it is you're trying to build. And, and then you get to like this middle life thing. You've built this. And, and then you like get to the middle, middle of life. And I turned 40 this year. So this is like right where I'm at. And you're like, ugh. You know, looking over there, that's interesting. You're looking back here, you're like, what? I can't believe I spent a decade doing that kind of stuff. Like, that felt, and you're like making sense, and so they call this a midlife crisis, you know? Um, like, maybe if I like try again, I'll get to the middle and feel better about where I got. If I can just like back up and try one more go at it, then I'll feel like, oh, this is better. And it's not. And that's why like the midlife crisis is such a sad thing to watch work out in people's lives. And so you're like, you're trying and, and then you get past that and your kids are leaving the house and, and there's like pain and there's a new threshold you're walking through as your kids are gone and the things you built. And you get to the end of your career and you, you have to retire and let that go. And, and then the kids aren't coming home as much and you've got grandkids, but you're grateful for every moment. And this is getting very real now. Your body's starting to feel it. You're experiencing it, and you're doing it with your whole generation. You're making your way. And that's a little bit overwhelming, but for the most mature people, they begin to face that and contemplate that and then reflect, and you feel these people that are reflective, and you start feeling with, with the healthiest ones just a joy and a gratitude, but also just like a real sense of like the nearness of death, maybe even like anticipation as life and the griefs and the pains have, have lasted. And then, um, and then they're off the scene. And then that happens again and again and again, generation after generation. And this is vapor. This is Hevel. How you doing? There's a phrase we've said at Park Church for a long, long time, which is, welcome to Park Church. You're all going to die. And, um, and it's, been like a, it's been like a little motif Throughout the, history of, throughout the history of Park Church from, from early days. Um, and, and what does it mean to actually begin to look at this and say, is that, am I trying to like just depress you? No. We're trying to actually poke holes at the things that life will eventually poke holes in. And the, and the author of Ecclesiastes is just going to work this out. He's going to start sharing, here's the stuff I did. Here's what I did chasing sex and life and ambition and pleasure and, and all these things. Here's what I did chasing wealth and possessions and family. And here's what I did chasing leadership and kingdom. And here's what I did chasing wisdom. And, and then I like look at back at the end and I'm still going to go through that door like everybody else. So what is the point of it all? And is it, is it meaningless? And the answer is no. Meaningless isn't the most helpful word. It's vapor. It's elusive, it's hard to understand, it's paradoxical, it's fleeting, it's here, it's gone, it's, it's vapor, it's hevel. So a couple things I take away from this, and one is, it might upset you, but this, take a deep breath, we're not that important. I'm totally serious, that's like a theme of Ecclesiastes. Take a deep breath, we're not that important which can be like daunting and depressing or freaking liberating, like liberating. It's okay. Your life isn't turning out all you thought it was going to be, as if all you thought it was going to be was going to make you feel happy and fulfilled and live this indelible mark on history. It's not. You're going to cycle through like all the other generations have, and it's okay. You can find freedom here, real freedom, when you realize we're not, we're not that important. We're really not that important. Another theme we can take away is stop striving for achievement and accumulation and surrender to the cycles and the seasons. Like life has this rhythmic pattern and when we, live to, when we learn to live in congruence with them and stop fighting it, when we learn that not just kind of history has its ups and downs and generation has its ups, ups and downs and you're sort of like your own like life story will have its ups and it's downs, like that's real, but also your like year will have its ups and its downs, your career will, your family will, your health will, and ultimately there's that great down through the door, and then we're off the scene. 
And so to spend your life stressed out trying to build and achieve and accomplish, like, this is heaven. You don't have to do that. You really don't have to do that. You can find freedom and joy. You can live a life that has real meaning and love and joy and peace and happiness, but, but that's a gift that comes and goes. And you can also learn to surrender those things. The, the springtime is real. The summer is real. The death of fall is real. The deadness of winter is real. And the springtime comes again. This is life. It's heaven. It's a cycle and it's fleeting. And this gives us real hope. Why would, the, why would the author of Ecclesiastes do this? Is it just to kind of plunge us into the hole of nihilism? Like nothing matters. Nothing matters. No, it's just to break down those, those foundations that we're like striving on and say, just take a minute. He's going to rub our face. And the, can remember David Foster Wallace, the really obvious but really important truths. He's going to rub them in our face and say, how should we live then? How should we then live in the light of these things? And it gives incredible freedom. So, so it's, it's real. It's real. Some people want to say, well, like, but don't forget about Jesus. I won't forget about Jesus, I promise. We're never going to forget about Jesus. But don't use Jesus to reject the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. He would not have it. He reiterated it all the time, over and over and over. In fact, all the New Testament reiterates it. This is a line from David Gibson in his, in his little book, uh, Living Life Backward, which is a helpful kind of like pastoral exposition of Ecclesiastes. He says this, but in the poetry that opens his book, this, this opening poem, the preacher is not commenting on what life is like without Christ. He's not saying this repetitive roundabout is what life is like from a secularist perspective. This is not the world, this, uh, this is not what the world feels like from the viewpoint of existential nihilism or postmodern navel gazing. It's just the world it's just what the world is like. It's reality. It's the same for everyone, Christian, non-Christian, adherent, or atheist. We each live under the sun. Being a Christian doesn't stop this being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending that it isn't true. Receive it. It will be a gift to you. It might change your life, but it'll change your life in a way that is liberating, liberating. And ultimately, this will lead us to Jesus. It'll lead us to Jesus. I told you we'd get back there. I'm going to go back to that graph. You're like, this isn't the end of the story, right? It's not the end of the story. Um, when, when we are living this life under the sun, the whole promise is something God will keep. And in order to keep the promise, he needed dramatic intervention to redeem the root cause of this divide. And so Jesus came into this earth. This invisible God took on flesh and entered into life under the sun. In life under the sun, he faced thorns and thistles and death, right? We sing about it. Remember that 90s song? You came from heaven to earth to show the way, right? From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, the ascension. Lord, I lift your name on high. That's right. That's right. 90s people, let's go. He did, and he, he ascended. He, he came from heaven to earth, and he took on flesh, and he, and he lived in the futility. And he, and he suffered, and he experienced injustice and pain and all the things, and he died. And he died to atone for our sin, to bear the wrath of God reserved for us because of our rebellion against Jesus, against the Father, against the authority of our Creator. And he bore that wrath that was reserved for us in order to reconcile us to God, but also to begin through his love to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he gives us his Holy Spirit to transform us. And what we want to think as like American Christians is that that equals life's going to be awesome. And it doesn't equal life's going to be awesome. Jesus promised it. In this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul promised it. This world is subjected to futility, but we're waiting the hope of the resurrection. Peter promised it, right? In this life, we have these, these afflictions of various kinds that are actually refining our faith in Jesus and in the life to come. And so we have this experience that God has promised us in Christ, and we can show it here on the screen, that he will come again and make all things new, but we live in this in-between time. We've been given the Holy Spirit, this foretaste of the life to come, but we're not yet there. And so what is life now? We call it the already not yet. That life still has its ups and downs, there's still thorns and thistles. There's still pain and difficulty. And you still will die. But you have the gift of the Holy Spirit with you through all of it, reminding you that God sees you and he loves you. And he's guaranteed for you this new creation future. And you get to taste it already through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You get to live in it already when you learn how to 
Reflect the life of Jesus in your life and in your family and your work and in your relationships. You get to participate already, but we're not yet there. There's still futility. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes stands for the Christian. But you now have this incredible hope that God is with you and that he will restore everything in the end. And that gives you the ability to navigate through the pain with a kind of freedom, not without emotion, not without grief, but a freedom and a hope and the presence of God and this example of Jesus who endured the cross, was buried, and rose again. That will be our path. If we follow Jesus, it means following him through the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. The way to the resurrection life, the life of the age to come, will include a downward descent to death and the surrendering of life. And when you get your mind and heart around that, it can free you to live life with meaning, with joy, with hope. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, because of the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, because of Jesus, your labor, your life, isn't vanity. He's referring to this. Jesus gives meaning. He gives it a stable, lasting meaning. I want to close with this line from from Romans chapter 8, um, which is a profound truth that I think that we as Christians often kind of tuck aside. Here's what Paul says, reflecting on this reality. It's already not yet reality. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. You hear Paul on the other side of the resurrection saying present time includes sufferings. Future time, glory to yet to be revealed, Right? The glory to be revealed to us. For the creation itself waits. Life under the sun waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That word futility, the Greek word for futility is the same word that the authors of the Greek translation of the Old Testament used to translate hevel. Same word. Hevel, futility, same word. Paul's referring to that moment. That creation was subjected to Futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's groaning. There's families in our church groaning today, groaning along with creation. Many of you are groaning. We've been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, if we're waiting for the time when Jesus will come again and make all things new, we wait for it with patience. This is what I think the book of Ecclesiastes has the ability to, to prepare us for, to have hope, to have endurance, to have the presence of God through the Spirit as we live our life, wrestling through, yes, the futility, the vaporishness of life that we all face. And if we come to terms with this and find Jesus in it, you can really live a life of incredible freedom and joy. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we right now pray that you would pour out your Spirit on our community and help us to learn the wisdom of the teacher. As one who embodies your wisdom, and Jesus, we Look to you as one who reminds us that in the midst of the futility and the vapor and the fleeting nature of life, the things that are paradoxical and confusing and frustrating and hard, that you're with us, that you you can sympathize with us, you've tasted it, you've felt it. And so would you meet us in these things? Would you increase our awareness of your love? We, We confessed it earlier, that your steadfast love is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning great is your faithfulness. Helps to build our life, Jesus, on your redeeming love and this new creation hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion here, and I want to invite the communion servers to to make their way up. Um, As they're coming, just encourage you to begin to reflect. Like on that journey, on that journey from, from stage right to stage left, where are you right now? Like where are you? And the reality is like, you don't know how long that journey is. You don't know. But what, what kind of, what stage of life are you in? And what are you chasing? What are you chasing? If you were to slow down and consider it, how's that working out for you? Like, I don't know, I'm still chasing. My sense is there is, when we're honest, 
an awareness within us that this isn't going to ultimately satisfy. This isn't going to give life. Uh, what I want to do is actually invite you all to stand. We're going to close all of our sermons uh, through Ecclesiastes with a corporate prayer uh, just to remind us of these things, confess these realities, and look to Jesus together. And so would you join me in this prayer? Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others would be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.